Welcome to Bigger Than The Game with Jeremy and Jose. I'm Jeremy Dove, and today I'm joined by someone who I've had such a great time coming on his podcast, and we talked about a home and home, and he's going to be on, he's so great as a guest, he's going to be on two, our next two episodes back to back, because he is our draft aficionado, he's a historian like Jose and I, he's got that love for it, and I'm just happy to have the host of the SNL Hall of Fame podcast, and he does a great job on his show, so please listen to his show, subscribe, like, all those things, but the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Thomas Sena joining me. So, Thomas, thanks for coming back on with me, man. Yes, sir. Thank you. So nice that you're having me twice. I exactly. appreciate, it. Exactly. I appreciate that. Yeah. You, you, you've been on. So we had a great discussion on the SNL Hall of Fame podcast about Dick Ebersol. Right. Which was fantastic. One of my favorite episodes that I've done. And you were on one of our roundtables talking yes. about your selections for the SNL Hall of Fame. So so we're all we're all podcast partners and buddies uh, exactly. at this stage. So the, exactly. yeah, this is good stuff. I'm a fan of your podcast. You and Jose Thank do you. a great job. I'm a listener and subscriber to Bigger Than the Game. So uh, it's just wonderful to uh, to be here. Chat no, with you. no, and we appreciate you, man, and and, and appreciate the support. And it's funny because I've heard from Lauren Michaels to other other fans, other you know journalists, critics. They kind of compare SNL to a team, to a franchise, mm-hmm. and and building a team. You know, SNL, Lauren, is, he's kind of like drafting his cast, drafting his writers, and seeing if he can get that championship product every Saturday night 11, at 11.30. And that's what, like, you know, Lauren Michaels is that GM is how I look at him for mm-hmm. SNL. And that's kind of what we're doing here a little bit. But we're looking back on a draft, and we're kind of – we're playing GM pretty much, you know, and yep. and kind of looking and seeing what would have worked, what could have worked, what we should have seen, and all those things. So that's why I think uh, the Hall of SNL Hall of Fame is very fun to do because you can look back and be like, yeah, that was a great pick by Lauren, this writer or this cast member, and how they he saw that they could fit onto the SNL family pretty much. You know, I'm always telling people that following SNL and being an SNL fan is almost exactly like being a sports fan Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. Like my, my, my favorite sports are baseball, basketball, football, and SNL. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Those are are the sports that I follow. Those are the four big sports that that I follow. I'm a hockey fan too, but like SNL is up there as far as like the sports that I follow. And I really do watch it that way. And you're right. Like the, 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 the draft, the NBA draft, and getting cast members and then following the cast members and how they're doing on the show and it is really really like following players that you liked in the draft mm-hmm. and you know seeing how they're going to do in the NBA so there's so many parallels to sports and SNL I, th- I think it's a perfect uh perfect match absolutely and it's fun because you can look at oh man you know well I remember when Seth Meyers and Amy Poehler were on in 01 and I, I could see I knew they were going to be something or like, man, I had high hopes for this SNL cast member and they let me down and they didn't bring this guy. Or, hey, it's a rebuilding year for SNL. You know, be mm-hmm. patient, trust the process, which yep. being from Philly, I know all too well now. So a lot of times it's like, what's Lauren doing? What's NBC doing? And it's like, wait, you got to trust the process. Hear him out. So it, it's it's a crazy comparison, man. You are so yeah. right. 
you got to trust so Lauren Hinky and what yeah. he's doing <laughs> <laughs> with with the show. Yeah, Just yeah. Trust that. Trust that process. Yeah, and I think I think we're on an upswing as far as SNL goes, as far as like the cast and the prospects that we've seen join the show over the last few years, like maturing and actually turning it into a good show. Mm-hmm. That, that's hilarious. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you got the. He's either Lauren Hinky or he can. Some years have that Lauren Steinbrenner kind of feel where he's just getting these, you yeah. know, Melissa McCarthy and, you know, any Jim Carrey. He's just, he's plucking mm-hmm. them. Alec Baldwin. So he, he <laughs> kind of goes back and forth which one he's going to be here. But um, exactly. this this is an interesting episode because, you know, for, I mean, the major drafts, we look at NFL and sports, we look at NBA, and there's a lot of them that we look back on in either sport, which were this was a loaded draft or, this one, you know, people, it didn't pan out. But um, for the NBA draft and the one that we're going to talk about, I think it's really unique in the fact that there's just so many things that have really haunted this draft. And we can point to other drafts that probably had less overall, like, talent as far as, like, what they did in the NBA. There's, like, quote-unquote worst drafts. But this one, Thomas, this... And we're going to be talking about the 86 NBA draft. It almost has like a cursed kind of feel to it, you know? It really does. It's it's uh, part tragic. I mean, a lot of it is, is is very tragic. And I don't think there, there, there hasn't been a draft possibly in well, the major drafts that people follow, like the NFL draft and NBA draft. I can't remember a draft that's like the 86 draft as far as just like what ifs and um, – one very tragic story that that we all know about that we're obviously going to talk about today and just players, you know, this was an interesting uh, turning point as far as the NBA addressing certain off the court issues that they had to address. Uh, There were, there were players, certain players in this draft that were the faces of that. And so just very, very cursed, very snake bitten. Uh, All those are appropriate words for the 1986 draft. Yeah. Um, and something that, you know, when we were talking about you coming on the show and what we wanted to talk about, you pointed out to me that despite all the, like the, the tragedy, there are some uh, highlights and also some certain franchises changed their fortune to in particular with this draft that kind of gets overlooked by a lot of uh NBA historians and draft fans like like ourselves, you know. So it has a mix. It's not all it's not all tragic. There's some positive that does come from it too. Yeah, there's definitely positives. There's uh, one franchise in particular drafted like three core players that turned him into a contender in the Eastern mm-hmm. Conference. One drafted a player who almost as far as culturally uh with the Pistons, this player turned them, you know, was one of the final pieces to to elevate them to like at a championship right. level. So there was some, there were a lot of positives uh, in this draft. I'm looking forward to talking about like the, the good things and the good players from this draft yes. along with the, some of the more snake, uh, snake bitten, uh, more heartbreaking kind of things that happened in the 86 draft. No, absolutely, man. So we're, I, I think it's interesting. And for me, and we, we talked about it on the other episode that we did where about you look at the top of the 86 draft and who originally has it. It's the, the Sixers and the Celtics and teams who the Celtics are the defending world champions 
arguably one of the best teams in NBA history, the 86 Celtics. And then you have the Sixers who won over like 50 games and they're the top two picks. So it's, it's still the beneficiary of a lot of these savvier GMs like Red Auerbach uh, for the Celtics, Pat Williams at the time for the Sixers taking advantage of the not so savvy that the Ted Sapiens and, and, you know, Donald Sterling gets involved later, but like owners like that, who kind of just make these awful draft picks that even made David Stern say, you got to stop. So when, when people look at it, like how these teams, and I know you know about it, Thomas, but how, like, how, how are the Sixers number one overall going into the draft of the Celtics? It goes with a lot of these owners who are just making dumb decisions. Yeah, in particular, the the old Cleveland owner, Ted Stepien, yeah. made some awful decisions. And we saw the Lakers were another team that was just such the beneficiary of this. And 79, they already had Kareem. They had the number one pick and drafted Magic Johnson. Uh, and in 82, they were coming up. They had already won a title with Magic Johnson and Kareem in, in uh, 1980. They were perennial championship team already. They got James Worthy, oh, number one overall in '82 right. because of some uh, taking advantage of some less savvy <laughs> and uh, owners, if you will. What's interesting to me too is so originally Philadelphia had the number one pick in the '86 yeah. draft, so we saw a turnabout where they actually got taken advantage of by the franchise that usually themselves got taken advantage of. So there was a, like a turnabout here, um, just with the number one pick. Absolutely. And and that's where it's bizarre. And I know for Philadelphia, this draft, the franchise, this draft looms over them to this day. And it honestly, also, you can say it looms over Charles Barkley's career in Philadelphia. Yes. And, and he has said it even as of recent, you know, like to the dismay that he's thinking he's getting Brad Darty, you know, to join him. And instead, they trade the pick, and he's got Roy Henson coming to join him, which mm-hmm. still looks like it's one of the worst trades still in NBA history. Is this this deal that the Sixers, you know, and Harold Katz was the owner, but uh, it, it's just a bizarre thing. And and I want to know what you think, Thomas, of a like just where this in your mind ranks with just worst trades number one, but then number two, how does the Sixers and Barkley's fortune? change if they stick with that pick and draft brad darty well now the sixers got roy hinson and cash jeremy so that's the big <laughs> no. my, my fault i forgot the, about the, the key yes cash. The, cash, the cash is the key there no so yep. roy hinson uh in cleveland the that season he averaged almost 20 points a game good score i guess the um Philadelphia management didn't think that they could get a player who can put up the, that kind of production. There was the less sophisticated draft knowledge back then. Um, Henson, uh, before I get into to your question, he have, he played 105 games in Philly, averaged about 13 points a game. He was just kind of your typical um, almost replacement score. Pretty honestly. much. Like, yeah, pretty much. Um, before, so I found an interesting note too. That the reason Philly had this pick was, was because of a trade with the Clippers seven years prior. Yep, for, and that for involved Jelly Bean. Joe Jellybean, yeah, Joe Bryant. So Joe Bryant went to the Clippers in the trade. Philadelphia got and I could see the Clippers thinking, like, it's seven years away. Yeah. Who cares? Have our have our first round pick. We're gonna be champions by then. 
Clippers were not champions by then. No. Philadelphia had the number one pick. So that's why Philadelphia had that number one pick because they kind of took advantage of the Clippers. But it's interesting to, to your question, if Brad Doherty is is a sixer, so so you're looking at Doherty, was that Moses Malone had already gone to Washington? He he goes event, they yeah, run up trading him, yeah, a little bit yeah. after this. So yeah, you know, so for, he's so so Moses Malone's not there for the eighty the eighty six eighty seven season, right? He's right. in Washington. Okay, so they still have Maurice Cheeks, who's still a productive player. He's coming mm-hmm. off of, um, he's getting a little bit older, but he's still a good, steady defender. Very least they have Chuck, who's getting into his prime. Um, one last season of Doc, I guess for for um, veteran leadership. But I mm-hmm. think Doherty, gosh, if you just pair Doherty and Charles Barkley, that changes the Sixers fortunes. Cause back then it was a, it was a big man's game, right? It was a, it was, it was, they were working from the post out and not even a lot of times even out. It was just the post. And then I'm going to back you in and mm-hmm. we're going to score. So I think, gosh, Brad Doherty, Charles Barkley, there's a chance that, that Charles Barkley, I mean, in a, in a different timeline doesn't end up in Phoenix. If, yeah, if this if they just stand pat and take and take Brad Doherty, so that that has repercussions felt throughout the through the mid nineties, maybe because Brad Doherty ended up being what four or five time All Star. I mean, he was he mm-hmm. he was he a good made, he yeah he was a good player. He lived up to the number one pick, uh, but I definitely think that changes Philadelphia's fortunes and Sixers fans and Charles Barkley in particular have every right to uh, to be resentful <laughs> of this yeah. trade. Yeah, it really loomed and really became a, you know, we find out, we kind of already finding out that Andrew Tony, his feet problems are are really affecting him, and so it wound up becomes like just a, a dark time. And honestly, until you get Allen Iverson, you know, this draft and that decision looms over the team for a decade, which I I think is fascinating about the draft in all sports, but you know, NBA is that these decisions. And a lot of times they're big ones. Sometimes even these small ones, they can affect your franchise for a decade. Like these mm-hmm. kind of moves. Like so, it's it's why the draft's so important. Exactly. And you would ask like other trades, like where it stacks up with other bad trades. I immediately think of uh, the Bucks drafting Dirk, and then yeah. the and, and there's you know there's not. I, I don't think the Bucks were drafting Dirk to keep him, and then all of a sudden Dallas said, "Let's trade." That was probably a draft for a pick where the Bucks drafted him to be traded to Dallas. Yeah. So so just like in '96 when the Hornets drafted, everybody says, "Oh, the Hornets drafted Kobe and they made the mistake of trading." Well, they weren't going to keep Kobe, and Kobe right. wasn't going to go to Charlotte. That pick was made so Kobe could go to the Lakers. Exactly. So that, that might have been a that situation, but I mean, on the surface, the Dirk for Robert Trailer <laughs> uh, trade is is pretty. Uh, pretty unforgivable um and that that that's like the the probably the one uh over the years that that immediately comes to my mind and this roy henson the roy henson trade we'll call yeah. it oh. yes that's what it is the roy <laughs> henson this, trade uh, this uh looms large in philadelphia i mean what what the sixers got for charles barkley wasn't that great but at least they got jeff horn as heck mm-hmm who lasted make a year or whatever, but at least he was better than, <laughs> than Roy Henson turned out to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it just, it, it, 
it's one of those things that's just so bizarre. But I and I look at even like we look at Brad Darty, and he kind of as a really good first pick, he doesn't really get to the age of thirty, you know, before he's eight years in and his back is so bad he has to retire. So you know, there's even a little bit of like what ifs or some tragedy around Brad Darty, but. I find it interesting because you go into the 86 draft and we know what happened with Len Bias, you know, two days later, tragically. But I look at just the fact that Brad Darty was the number one pick and it seemed like he was, there wasn't a lot of like debate, like he's number one over a Len Bias. Mm -hmm. And Thomas, what I'm interested in is we know when for so long, the big man was king. But do you think not, not, no, not don't look at what happened two days later, but if the draft, if this is five years, even ten years later, do you think Brad Darty still would have been the first pick over a Len Bias? No, I think Len Bias would have been would have been the first pick. The way the game was changing, because Len Bias Len Bias was ahead of his time. Yes, really, he was a very ath- athletic wing. He had a good mid range jump shot, very marketable. Like he would have been. I think if Len Bias was in the NBA, he, we would have seen Len Bias on in commercials. And things of that nature. So his style was more conducive to what we started seeing probably in the mid 90s and beyond. So I think Brad, while Brad Doherty obviously became a really good player and a perennial all star, I think just if you if you fast forwarded a decade later, Len Bias would have been the number one pick uh, in the draft and Doherty with Doherty going to after him. And we saw a few players like Chuck person got picked in this draft and he probably would have stood Pat because of his skill set translated to where the NBA right. was going as well. But yeah, to your point, I think Len bias in another generation, give it a few more years and he probably would have been the number one pick, which kind of just amazes me because it's kind of what was said, you know, looking at 84 with MJ. And, and now you have an Olajuwon, and then you have a Sam Bowie. And it was like definitely with those guys. And Olajuwon, you know, all-time great. But it was a hype thing. But, you know, Lim Bias was Michael Jordan, but he's two, three inches taller yeah. and, and bigger, like much bigger and just diesel. And as good as Brad Darty was, I know he was a heck of a player at Carolina, no offense to him. No one talks about then or now Brad Darty at Carolina the way you still hear people then and now talking about Len Bias at Maryland. Like he was on par the way they talked about MJ at Carolina. It was mm-hmm. Len Bias at Maryland. That's just what baffles my mind. And MJ's already performing in the league at that time, too. So I'm just kind of shocked that, like, why didn't, you know, Cleveland or Philly beforehand look at Len Bias as that number one pick? Yeah, I agree with you. And even like as prospects, so you talked about there was already an archetype of what Len Bias could be with Michael Jordan. And to a certain extent, Clyde Drexler was already starting to show some signs right. of mm-hmm. of becoming a star too. So you had those archetypes of what Len Bias could be. And as you said, in in a, a few a couple inches taller <laughs> frame. Yeah. And Brad Doherty is a prospect. Um, to my knowledge, he wasn't like because the year the year prior, Patrick Ewing was the number one pick, and he right. was like the next Bill Russell. That's yeah. the type of prospect, but he was talked about in those terms. Olajuwon, the year before in '84, was talked about more so in, in those terms. Ralph Sampson was the next big thing in '83. So you had these drafts where the big man 
reigned and, you, and all these big men were getting hype. But I don't think Brad Doherty as a prospect at the time was considered on that level of prospect like Olajuwon or Ewing. So, and then the next year, it's kind of funny because we see this run of big man. And even in 87, David Robinson was the first pick. And right. he was thought to be like in the Ewing, Bill Russell mold. And then you have Brad Doherty. And I don't think Brad Doherty as a prospect was thought to be that. So it still, it does baffle me to this day that Len Bias wasn't the first pick. James Worthy is another example of a Len Bias kind of archetype, even though I yeah. think Bias is more shifty, can maybe handle the ball a little bit more than Worthy. But we started seeing that archetype more. So I am baffled that, you know, while Cleveland did make a great trade, um, sending Roy Hinson and, and cash to Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> <one pick. laughs> gotta have that cash. <laughs> yes. Gotta, gotta, don't forget that cash. Uh, it does shock me then after they made that great trade that they didn't just take Len Bias. Yeah. That, and, and obviously due to tragedy, it worked out for Cleveland, but I still think, um, Ralph Sampson at seven, like the guys you named, it's a great job because Sampson, Olajuwon, Ewing, and then David Robinson, they were freak, they were unicorn type guys in college. They were freaking nature guys. Mm-hmm. Brad Darty was not that. No. And I think Brad Darty, even without the back injury, like he could have, which is a testament to him. I think he could have had a Hall of Fame career, like, or been close because, like, he made an all NBA team. He was an all star in a time of the big man. But he wasn't those kind of guys. He wasn't no. those. So I, I always, which I don't hear people talk about, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, of course Brad Doherty was one. And I'm thinking, why is it of course? Why isn't it of course Len Bias was number one? That's just what always got me. Like, And and, and I think it kind of segues into the next point that I have, though, a question I want to bring up with you is we know what happens to tragedy two days later that it happens to Lim Bias and it gets other players that we'll get into. What do you think Lim Bias's ceiling would have been if he does, you know, he's number two with the Celtics or the defending champs. What do you think the ceil- the ceiling is for Lim Bias? And then also, what do you think happens to that franchise if, if Lim Bias plays for it? Man, that's a million dollar questions that even Celtics fans especially have been asking themselves since uh since 86 i know i know bill simmons brings this up like (laughs) once a week at least Uh, (laughs) um gosh len by i think his ceiling was was one of the two or three best players in the league in his prime i don't think he would have i don't think he would have eclipsed jordan i think jordan it was still would have been jordan's league but if you're looking at like the late 80s and early 90s to be honest with you once we started seeing guys like Bird's body broke down, Magic unfortunately had to retire young. We we saw there wasn't a lot of new talent that that came in to replace them. All the great guys throughout even to the, throughout most of the 90s were guys who were more veterans. So they were like Olajuwon, Jordan, Ewing, those types of guys. Robinson's one of the exceptions that came in and was was a superstar. But when you look at the drafts after this, there wasn't a lot of new talent as much so as in other eras that got replenished. So I think there was a window there. There was an opportunity there for Len Bias then to have been like one of the faces of the league. So I could have seen him if all his talent came to fruition. I, it could have been Jordan and then like Len bias 
You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the best case. And we of course we're no we're we're big on the draft, and there's a chance that Len Bias wouldn't have lived up to that. There's a chance he would have been a bust for on the court reasons. Maybe maybe his shot would have wouldn't have come along like people thought. Maybe you know there's all these reasons why. But I think just potential wise, Len Bias could have been a one of the three best players in the league throughout the nineties, honestly, it would have taken time because we saw bird when he got drafted. Bird was still an MVP. McHale was one of the best players in the league. Um, but I think, you know, maybe, maybe Reggie Lewis doesn't get the opportunity that he did. So maybe bias replaces Reggie Lewis in the priorities. The Celtics had right. Right. Yeah. No, but then bias could have taken over once bird's body totally broke down and Parrish and McHale got older, you know? Yeah, yeah, I I think Lynn Bias, well, as far as the player for me, I think at worst, just the way his game translated, I think he's a a multiple time All Star mm-hmm. at, at like his the lowest. He just made a few All Star games, which is still a heck of a career, you know, in the yeah. grand scheme of things. But I honestly think the way he was, and the way, and no disrespect to Larry Bird, Larry Bird's still a top you know, top 10, some may say top five all-time player, the small fort position was making a transition in the late 80s to a much more, you know, you saw Scottie Pippen, Xavier McDaniel. It became much more athletic, and I think Lynn Bias would have been the, the the blueprint of that, and he would have been the face of that. And and I think Lynn Bias would have been, you know, if he would have played and lived and played, I think we would have – we had the NBA 75th anniversary team – I think Lim Bias makes that. I think he's mm-hmm. he's there. I don't think I'm with you. I don't think he's MJ, but I think he he's an all time great. He's a Hall of Famer, and he's at that NBA at 75 celebration. Yeah, I think I think that's reasonable. And you brought up small forwards in that position, and no disrespect to this person, but somebody like Dan Marley made uh, multiple All Star games. Right. And he was very good. He had his role, good shooter, good defender, slasher. But I think Len Bias probably would have been better than Dan Marley. For sure. And Marley made all-star games. So, yeah. you know, you kind of look and I know Marley played in the West for those and, and Bias would have been in the East. But I think Len Bias at worst probably like would have made a couple of all-star games. Reggie Lewis ended up making, I think, one or two all-star games mm-hmm. um, before his untimely passing. So. Uh, I, I agree with you as far as where you see where Len Bias would have fallen. And that's not that's not like we probably sound like um, people who are romanticizing a certain player, or a certain era and uh, and everything. But you just go watch film and watch the way people talk about him. And it was hard to imagine that his style would have failed in the league. Yeah, I, I it just doesn't. It, like, you know, unless to me, the only thing stopping him and the way he was, you know, Lim, I remember listening to a podcast a few years ago, Brad Darty talking about how Lim Bias was ahead of the curve on nutrition. He didn't put anything bad in his body that, you know, he wasn't a drinker. That's what made the tragedy two nights later even crazier was like he wasn't a partier. He wasn't a guy who you're like, oh, watch out, Lynn. Like it, it was just like, man, just just unbelievable and to the, to the point where there's a lot of conspiracy theory about what happened that night. And the thing is, we'll never know, you know, and it's not for us to know. And the sad right. thing is, you know, his parents lost a son, his sibling, they lost a brother. That's number one, but it's just like, 
it, Lynn Bias was even ahead of the curve in that. So I think unless he was an injury, which he wasn't before, unless he was an injury prone guy in the league, there's no way he's not succeeding. Yeah, and yeah, he took he obviously took care of his body. Like you just look at videos of him, and he had like he muscles before that was like a <laughs> yeah. common thing. Yeah, in the league, like he he was defined. He was athletic. You can obviously tell that he he trained properly. And yeah, no, I mean, there's only a handful of people who really know what what happened that night. I mean, he was with maybe two other people. I think most of the night. Yeah, and I think a couple of his teammates came and went. Yeah, they were throughout, like in and out throughout yeah. the night. Yeah, like Keith Gatlin, I think maybe came, but stopped by for for a brief period of time and left. Or but there were only maybe a couple people who Len Bias was hanging out with uh, that whole night. So no, we, we'll never know. And like you said, it's not necessarily for us to know. It's just it's a tragic thing that happened. Um, a family lost their kid. Uh, friends lost their friend. And um, on a on a wider you know um, scale, or I guess, or not probably on a lower scale, but just the sports world lost a potentially all-time great and um then len bias lost the opportunity to to fulfill his potential and live out uh, his uh, like dream of playing the nba so yeah and yeah. and this it, you know just to highlight it for those who don't either they don't remember or those who weren't around um what this death did it it changed a lot when it came it impacted sports on the court and all that, but it changed the whole kind of like it's a defining moment in the eighties, honestly, and how we look at the the drug culture, the crack epidemic, and it's a defining moment in a lot of ways. And also, like this was kind of building. You know, the NBA had had that problem of you know it's too black, it's too much drugs in the seventies, and it had, drugs had affected careers before David Thompson's career, uh, Michael Ray Richardson. Haywood. Spencer Haywood. Yeah. yeah. Richardson got banned in 84, yep. but this kind of was the culmination of a lot of that for the league. And a lot of people used his death for better and for worse to kind of a lot of the drug policies we wind up seeing and, and different things like that. So this had an impact on the nation. And a lot of people of that era, they remember where they were when they heard Lynn Bias's death. Yeah, definitely. And you're right, culturally, not just in basketball, because we, we, yeah, we know about basketball. Like David Thompson, to me, was like one of the big what ifs mm -hmm. in the NBA. He ended up having a good career as it was. I mean, he was an all star or whatever, but drugs definitely derailed David Thompson. He could have been up there like you said, 75th anniversary, like David Thompson right. should be <laughs> right. up there if things played out like they should have Michael Ray Richardson. Uh, so we knew that that was a problem. Michael Jordan alluded to it. I just rewatched The Last Dance. Uh, oh, again. right, right. Yeah, and Michael Jordan alluded to that. some of his teammates. Um, you could go look at the roster and speculate as to who he was talking about. I'm not really going to do that here, but yeah. I think a couple of those guys were kind of known to to mm -hmm. be in cocaine and partying and stuff. And that that was just the thing. It was a thing in the society, too. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, that's kind of what people started doing, you know? And uh, I think you're right. Like this was a big turning point as far as the NBA getting serious about its a lot of its drug problems and society as a whole. I think it scared the crap out of people. Probably scared a lot of people out of even trying cocaine, mm -hmm. trying things like that. You know, I know. You know, um, I was only four years old when Len, but Len Bias passed away, so I heard the story after the fact. Yeah. It even scared me as a kid, like 
of wanting to try stuff like that. I've never tried yes. coke in my life. I've never been a, like a drug user, partier much, or things like that. And that Len Bias story scared because I found out he he didn't do a lot of cocaine. Like as far as I knew, that was his first time, the first That's night I tried it. Right. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it had an impact. That was the, I guess that was a good impact that it had on people is waking people up and scaring people out of, out of doing a drug like that. No, no. And you're right. And that's a good point you brought up that a lot of times my family used that as the example of like, Hey, one time Lynn Bice did it like, you know, he did it once and he, he died. So you never know when you do. And, and you're absolutely right. That had a fear in the back of my mind. Well, like, Hey, Lynn Bias, like I do it one time. That could be it for me. Like, and it kind of loomed and you're, I never really tried it. Cause it was like, that's, I'm like, that's my luck is yeah. one time and I'm gone. So like, it, exactly. it, you're right. It did kind of loom there for a while. Yeah. Unfortunately, there were a couple of people, at least in this draft who didn't take that as a cautionary tale yeah. against cocaine. You know, and that's part of what makes this draft so unfortunate and and cursed and snake bitten is we talked about Len Bias, but there are a few people in this draft who should have taken that as a wake up call. What happened to their fellow draft classmate? And they did not. And they're all in the top 10, you know, yeah. um, Chris Washburn, mm-hmm. William Bedford, Roy Tarpley. Yep. You know, Washburn was third to the Warriors, Bedford sixth to Phoenix, and Roy Tarpley got, you know, the Mavericks from Cleveland, from good old Ted. Uh, he was seventh. So, but those those guys, so, you know, you have four of your top ten affected, and you know, by, you know, drugs and, and you know, one leading to a death and the other people yeah. getting banned from the league and it affecting yeah. them careers and after their careers i think chris washburn was one who people kind of if you look back it's there was trouble with him at north carolina state you know Mm -hmm. jimmy v was coaching him uh and some of the other guys they're they're a little it's sad but not as surprising as what happened with lynn bias right right chris chris washburn uh in particular he he did have there were some um known stuff that he he uh he had some trouble at nc state he actually checked into rehab during his rookie season in the nba yeah so that hit quick for chris washburn and he he was the type of player that washburn was just to put him in context we're talking about like how in the mid 80s the the big man was valued mm-hmm. right like height washburn was 611 and pretty at like an athletic frame um and he, a lot of him was a lot of potential because he was a big man who could move. And he only played 72 games in his career in the NBA. He checked into rehab like his rookie season. It was because of cocaine. He had a cocaine issue. And he, I don't, see with him, I don't think, I don't think as a player, he would have lived up to the number three. Pick. No, no. I it agree. didn't seem like, it didn't seem like he would have been to that level. I don't think he would have been as good as Brad Doherty. Um, Chuck Person kind of players like that, um, but it was that was one where teams probably should have taken more seriously what what was thought about him prior to the draft. And unfortunately, he didn't he didn't look at what happened to Len Bias and say, "I need to get my act together and stop doing this coke." And mm-hmm. you know, they sent him to rehab, and then a few years later, he was got a lifetime ban 
from the NBA. He failed three drug tests, and that was it for him. Yeah, and um, it was bad enough that, you know, one of David Stern's early on, his first acts of as commissioner in 84 was he, he banned sugar. Michael Ray Richardson yeah. for, you know, the time banned for life. And, uh, and I think that's something to me that I, I like to point out to people is, and I wanted to hear what you thought about this point. Um, you look at it, this, this disease of addiction, it, 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 it hits every culture. It hits every economic gender, face, whatever you want to look at, it hits anybody. There's no, oh, you got to be one of them to get it. No, everyone gets affected by it. You know, if you're not affected, I think it's hard to find someone who doesn't at least know someone who has battled this disease, you know, mm-hmm. once you get to a certain age. But I, I, part of me thought about it in getting ready for this is that looking at, come like, how does all, how does one class get so much, you know, tragedy with, with, with addiction and and just go with me i want to see what you think in college basketball that kind of it was popular but from the 79 title game with bird and magic it kind of blew up and then you get the big east espn in college basketball you know march madness becomes this big event and a lot of you know that money that attention is going to these universities coaches are becoming stars Players are now on cable. They're becoming stars. And do you think, not that it's the whole factor because it was building in society, but how much of a factor do you think that comes into where now at college basketball, you're like a superstar right? and you're getting that kind of, you're getting that attention like the pros do, which you didn't really have before until like the eighties and that kind of affecting these young men, you know, at the time. Well, I can see that. I mean, we've seen throughout sports history, there's a too much too soon kind of thing that tends to affect uh, a lot of athletes. We saw that. I mean, I, I just alluded to the the dearth of talent that 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 we kind of that was in the NBA around the early 90s. Um, a lot of those guys didn't live up to their potential because it was like a too much too soon right. kind of thing. Like we're talking about like Derek Coleman and 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 those kind of players who who really did have too much too soon and they didn't quite fulfill their potential. And I think that could happen. I think that's a really interesting point that um, from 1979 on through the 80s, there was just so much attention, so much new attention <laughs> given yeah. to college basketball. It's possible that like the UCLA dynasty kind of put people to sleep a little bit mm-hmm. and just made them like, oh, yeah, it's a foregone conclusion that UCLA is going to win. And then we started getting these new teams in the late 70s. And by the 80s, college basketball was like this brand. And you start right. seeing like the Georgetown teams getting attention and Houston, the flat five slam a jamma getting attention. So I, I think that could be a big part of it. You're not just a student athlete. Now you're going to the play and you're more of a star. You're more of a superstar. And yeah. sometimes it's, it's hard to handle for a lot of people is that attention, fame, probably money, more money given to players underneath the table, drugs, obviously given mm-hmm. to players underneath the table, so I think that's a really interesting point, Jeremy. Yeah, because I just look at it like nationally in the 70s, right? Like who was a college player who was known? Ever? Bill Walton, because usually like Bill you see yeah. But like a lot of other great players, it's like they're more regional. Like the Carolina guys, they're known in the South for the ACC and stuff. But, you know, if you're out in the West Coast, do you really know like Phil Ford? 
Like you don't really know him, right. like you know, or Bobby Jones at that time. But then in the eighties, with e- cable and ESPN, you know, everyone, you know, Jim Beheim talks about like he go to California. And they're like, oh yeah, you coached Pearl. I see you on on the Big East and everything. Like that, they weren't used to that. Like that mm-hmm. became a dip, big time thing. And I think I, I just kind of wonder how much that Lim Bias was known. Like people knew Absolutely. who he was. Ten yeah. years earlier, he's known in like the South. Right, you know what I mean? Right. And Washburn played in a in a college basketball hub. He played mm-hmm. in he played in the uh, uh, Raleigh. So he played with near like Durham with Duke and Chapel yep. Hill in North Carolina. Yeah, he he played in that area and can imagine how much attention <laughs> he was right. getting. And NC State was coming off a title. Yeah, he, he, uh, Washburn. Went to NC, got to NC State a year after after they had won that championship. So they were still a, a brand. NC State was still kind of a brand in college basketball. They won a title. Valvano was like this this uh, flashy coach who got a lot of attention. So I can imagine Washburn was supposed to be like NC State's next big thing. But I can imagine with him specifically too, um, it was probably a lot for him and his personality. Yeah, yeah. And we have Roy Tarpley. Who I think uh, look at Tarpley and Bedford real quick. Do you what do you think about those two guys as far as the, their potential if if they had stayed more on the straight and narrow? Well, Bedford. Um, so Bedford was the sixth pick. Uh, the Suns drafted him sixth overall, and then Roy Tarpley went seventh to the Mavs. So with Bedford, I don't I don't know that there was a lot there as far as just what player he could have been. Um, even, even at Memphis, he wasn't like an all American. He played on good Memphis teams, uh, and there in the mid eighties, but, but I, I just didn't, can't, didn't see a path for William Bedford to be like this great player. Um, substance abuse stuff did him in almost entirely, uh, pretty quickly. He missed an entire season because of his issues, the 88, 89 season Bedford, which is gone. He he's an NBA champion. <laughs> he he was on the nine, 1990 Pistons as like a played six minutes a game, but he was like an NBA champion. But I think his destiny probably was as like a bench big you know, a big man off the bench. You know, yeah. maybe like he could have gotten to Sam Bowie level, and Bowie was a decent, a decent player, uh, which Bedford maybe uh, could have been. But I didn't see much for Bedford. You know, it's an odd record that William Bedford holds. That, What's uh, that? He found the same thing. So he, William Bedford holds the record for fewest minutes played in a game with three or more three pointers made. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. You're right. That okay. is going back. Yeah, and he was yeah. a big man. He wasn't a shooter, but he went three for three in one minute when he was with the Pistons in a game in 1990. So Bedford actually holds a really obscure NBA record, but I don't think I don't think he could. He would have been some star or okay. anything like that. Serviceable. Big man off the bench, a Sam Bowie, maybe Benoit Benjamin type of guy, but um, but I didn't see much for him. Roy Tarpley, though, we can really get into. I, uh, yeah, I don't know if you had any thoughts on? That no, or- I I thought um, that Dallas Maverick team of yeah. like the late eighties, you know, they they got to some conference finals. They're you know, only the you know, Showtime Lakers were in their way. Uh, with uh, Derek Harper and Mark Aguirre, Sam Perkins is there, and Roy Tarpley. And uh, Roy, I feel like, you know, really could have been something if he had stayed 
more yeah. on that path, you know. Gosh. Aside from Len Bias, I think Tarpley is the biggest tragic story um, from this draft. Like the big, like as far as wasted potential, because yeah. we saw what what Roy Tarpley could do. Like he he made the All Rookie Team. He was good right away. Showed flashes. Six Man of the Year, his second season in the league. He put up so so those great those were really good Dallas teams. You'd mentioned like Harper, Rolando Blackman, Mark Aguirre, yes. Sam Perkins. Those were I think James Donaldson was a good big man on those teams. Mm-hmm. So Tarbley came off the bench. They ended up making the Western Conference Finals. He put up sixteen and thirteen in the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers. He averaged sixteen and thirteen. Yeah, against the Showtime he, Lakers. Yeah, against the Showtime Lakers. Tarbley averaged eighteen points and thirteen rebounds a game in seventeen playoff games that year. He was putting up 18 and 13 in a playoff run for the man. Like he was going to be a cornerstone for those Mavericks. And it was, it was all laid out for him. He was just, he was going to be like a, I don't want to invoke Moses Malone too liberally, but like Barkley was damn near Moses Malone level, like just gifted rebounder. Honestly. Like, yeah. He could have been maybe not the scorer that Moses was, but like Tarbley could have been a beast on the boards like that. But then like six games into the 89-90 season, he was arrested for a DUI and resisting arrest. Rested again, March of 1991. Was banned from the league for in violating 95, drug right? policy. Well, he was banned from the league in 91. 91. Yeah. But then he actually came back. He got reinstated. And came back for the 94-95 season. And I vividly remember this. I was probably 11, 12 years old. I was going on 12 years old. 13, actually, at this point. So I was like full-fledged, hardcore NBA fan at this point. And Roy Tarpley was 30. Got reinstated into the league. He was going to like... This is going to be a redemption story. Um, he averaged 12 points and 8 rebounds. Not bad for somebody who hadn't played in the league in 3, 4 years, you know. Uh, but then what what you just said, and this is one of the parts that makes it so tragic to me, is that he was banned again. Right? Yeah. Like he came back, made this comeback, and then he gets banned again in in 95 because he violated the terms of his uh, aftercare program. And, and he wound that, up su- suing the league over the uh, – saying that they violated the Mavericks and the NBA violated the Americans with – Disabilities Act, mm. you know, so which um, is a and someone who worked in drug and alcohol myself. So like that is a serious, you know, and like and people do still to this day do it, you know, uh, it had companies, I mean, like will violate it. So it's, it's even interesting in that regard that I wonder how often you were hearing that at that right. time, not just in sports, but anywhere yeah. about it was just new. The ADA was five years old. Yeah, at that, at that mm-hmm. point, so it was kind of a new thing to invoke in situations like that. But David Stern was—he uh, lived up to his last name. He was Stern as a <laughs> as a as a commissioner. So, yep. yeah, he probably didn't. He he uh, had probably low tolerance for for Roy Tarpley, and he was concerned about the image of the league. And um, I I think he he saw and, and to be honest, he he knew the the stigma was wrong that it was racial black you know and drug addict and so there was that harsher it wasn't sophisticated as much as we're a lot we still have a long way to go but we're better now so he knew that as working in the league office and coming into it they think it's too black and too drug and they could people connect those together they connect race and poverty 
with drugs, even though that's not the case no. then or now, but people do that. So I think that David Stern was very image heavy. And that's why, like you say, he lived up to that name. He, he was stern with it. Yeah. And I, he felt like, you know, with Roy Tarpley, he said, you know, we banned you. We gave you a second chance. And, and, and that was it for him. And I remember being sad. Like I knew Roy Tarpley's story at the time. Like mm-hmm. I said, I was 13 uh, when he had his comeback season. And when, and when I found out that he had been banned again, I was just like shaking my head like, damn, that, that sucks. Because I think when he got himself in more into NBA shape as the years went on, into his mid thirties, he could have been a really productive rebounder, a really, Absolutely. really good rebounder. Not, I don't think he would have reached all-star level uh, necessarily at that point in his career, but I mean, we could have seen him in the late nineties into the early two thousands, still helping a team like a Kevin Willis, maybe a right. lesser version of like a Kevin Willis, That's but this comparison. old vet who could have helped the team on the boards, you know, like, uh, so aside from Len bias, I think Roy Tarpley is just, is the one that just makes me shake my head the most. And it's just unfortunate. And what's sad about that is that's four of your first top ten picks in this seven. draft. We'll say it's four oh, of the yeah. first seven. Four of like, the first seven picks. that point home. You know, which yeah, is like, insane. Glenn Bias, Chris Washburn, William Bedford, and Roy Tarpley. All substance abuse issues to one extent or the other. Four of your first top seven picks. Wow. You know, and... and you're right, but the thing is, too, there's more tragedy and more bad luck with this draft, sure. and there's the international flavor of tragedy and bad luck with Drazen Petrovic and Sabonis. One more than the other, obviously, yep. but Petrovic and Sabonis, who at the time we know the inter, you know, the international game really, you know, and even in the '90s, as we were talking about before on another episode, it was like. Oh, what? Like the European game? Not sure. But in the 80s, it really had that effect. But these were guys who, if their bad luck and tragedy didn't hit them, they really could have changed that that thinking a lot earlier than like Dirk did in 98, you know? Yeah, I think Petrovic was on his way to changing the, the narrative with international mm-hmm. players, especially. We could get to Sabonis, but Petrovic is completely interesting to me because he was beloved in the NBA as an international player. And that didn't, that didn't happen. He was one of the more beloved international players that I could ever remember from those, from those early years. Yeah. Right. And cause he was this sharpshooter. He had this game that like appealed to Americans. Right. And, and, and what we like to watch, he almost reminded me of like a prototype of clay Thompson and just in the way he moved and his shooting form, maybe Petrovic was a little more shifty in his game. Yeah, give a little more. Yeah, yeah, but he was he almost remind me of like a little bit of like a Clay Thompson. I uh, think that I type. think uh, Drazen was a better defender than people remember. Yeah, not as good as what Clay was as a defender, but Drazen could play some defense, and Drazen was a little more to people didn't realize, which I think, like you said, is why he appealed to players. Players respected him and fans. He talked a little more trash. He had a little more, <laughs> little more street, a little more flavor to him than what yeah. people associated with the European game. But you know, he he tragically dies in '93, and and he didn't go to an All Star game, but was on an All NBA team. Yeah, you yeah. know, and and he's someone who was drafted in '86 by Portland, but took some time. Didn't really pan out there. 
would wound up going to the Nets. And I think a lot of people remember him on those teams with Derek Coleman and Kenny Anderson mm-hmm. and those Nets teams. For that little run, they were fun to watch. Yeah. Um, and Drazen was a big reason why a lot of people wonder what would have happened to him if he would have lived and not had that tragic accident. Yeah, he could have taken the mantle because the the shooting guard depth around that time wasn't the best. I mean, of course, Jordan was like leaps and bounds better than any other player, much less shooting guard in the yeah. in the league. And uh, then you had like Mitch Richmond, um, Reggie, Reggie Miller. Yeah, uh, but Petrovich could have been up there with with them with that second tier at that position, definitely. And I think he could. I think and uh, Reggie, I go back and forth on. I think he would have been better than Reggie Miller. Um, Mitch Richmond, I feel like, is very underrated how good he was, uh, what he could do. But I think Drazen could have been better than both of them. I think, yeah, that number two shooting guards, you know, overall, especially in the Eastern Conference, you know, all-star yeah. games. Of you're getting Clyde Drexler, I think, but a little bit. But but even <laughs> about that time, Clyde started slowing down. Let's say he was slowing down. Yeah. Like, like the, when Drazen was emerging in the 90s, Clyde, right. Kind of like after he was after like 92, Clyde's mm-hmm. kind of going down. He's still productive, but yep. he's not the Clyde of the 80s and the early 90s in, in Portland. So yeah. I think Drazen could have really and, – and he was someone who like, you know, I think he said it like there's certain players you can look at and think, did they play before their time? Were they too late or at the right time? Drazen was like ahead of his time in what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And he, he got attention – when he was in Portland, cause he was like a decent bench player for a team that went to the finals that ended right. up losing to Detroit. So Drazen actually had like a decent role on that Portland team. A lot of people forget. They think of Clyde and, and Terry Porter and those guys, but Drazen was like an important part of, of a finals team in Portland. And then mm-hmm. I think the Nets wisely probably saw a lot of potential in that and scooped him up and he ended up having his best years in New Jersey uh, but that's like a serious what if, uh, yeah. definitely on the international side from that draft. I, it's right up there, you know, bias and him. Th- those are the ultimate like sad yeah. stories with 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 passing. And mm-hmm. you know, Willis Reed passed away not too long ago, and with a lot of the tributes were coming out, I had forgotten that he was like an executive of those Nets teams, and a lot of people say that took the wind out of him. Wow when Drazen died just that, you know, he had affection for as a person, but also what they were trying to build in New Jersey when Drazen died, that kind of was the end of Willis, you know, as far as his NBA career being an executive. Yeah. And then that, I don't think that team had good guidance. Like I think Chuck Daly ended his mm-hmm. career as a coach there. And if he was on kind of on his way out, he probably was getting a little worn down of being an NBA coach. And Derek Coleman didn't quite have the personality of a no. leader. Necessarily, I don't think Kenny either. Anderson did either. Yeah, so maybe I don't know. Like, I don't, I can't speak to Drazen Petrovich's personality necessarily, but maybe he could have been like a more stabilizing presence uh, with with those Nets teams had had he had he lived. Especially bridging the gap. Remember, they they get Cal Perry as a coach, and then you have those teams which were kind of fun. They didn't go deep in the playoffs, but with Kendall Gill and Kerry Kittles and all the you know Van Horn was there, yeah. so like. Sam Who Cassell, knows? yeah, yeah. That, that was the, those were fun. I remember the famous. Uh, it was a famous Slam magazine cover that said uh, "Nets champions by 2002." Count on it, and it yeah. had them on the cover of, of Slam magazine predicting that they were going to be champions. So, 
So yeah, I think I think the Nets could have been a more stable organization, obviously through throughout the nineties. Um, if it that didn't happen, late. yeah, and, and we have to look, and especially it's 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 crazy because of the Nuggets winning and all people talking about Joker, mm-hmm. but uh, you know Sabonis is drafted also, Arvidas Sabonis in this draft, and I I don't know if there's if you watch what Sabonis was doing, you watched Olympic play and him against the Americans. Uh, Arvidas Sabonis is a freak of nature. And I, and I, I, I could be off. Maybe it's a better. Com- I think what we see with Joker, I think that was Sabonis back in the 80s, honestly. And yeah, honestly, more I, exciting. I was going to say, I think Sabonis was maybe was more athletic, too. Yeah. You would see him in transition dunking on people, getting put back dunks. And I think Sabonis was a little more exciting. He would have a flair with his passes. And I know Jokic does, too, but I think that's a. He, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying this to say that Sabonis would have been like a two-time MVP and a champion and everything like that. But you can see when watching Jokic and then watching earlier video of Sabonis how those are like apt comparisons. People were calling Sabonis a more athletic Bill Walton, right? And and uh, Sabonis was what like the a late first-round pick in this '86 draft. Um, also by Portland. Portland actually was like they seemed like one of the few teams who who at least tried to scout internationally around around right. this time. Yeah, they were they were a little ahead of the curve, you know. A little Portland bit. was they were yeah. trying, but I, I think Sabonis would have been an All Star in his prime and probably All NBA. But that was it was to stiff competition. He would have been playing at the same time as like Hakeem and Patrick Ewing and those guys. But he was every bit as talented, probably. As, yeah. as some of those guys, and he even we even saw old Sabonis in Portland. He was still good, <laughs> still hitting hitting those threes and real you know, bringing Passes Shaq outside and, the paint and everything. Yeah. Still very um, productive. And I, oh, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. Oh, that, that was just a, if that was just a glimpse of what he could have been uh, in his prime. I think he could have been something special because he was in Portland. He was still like putting up fifteen points and almost ten rebounds a game when he was just like on half a leg. At that, I point. mean. Um, Let's. I have two things for you. So let's look at it. We know that. So with Sabonis, it was the political climate, Cold War, all those things, and and then money finally comes in the nineties. He's he's older, injured, not as athletic. Like you said, still putting up. But if Portland gets Sabonis, even after a couple, say he comes in eighty eight, uh, do you think Detroit has one less championship, or the Bulls have one less championship? If the Portland, if Sabonis is on those Blazers teams, I don't know that the Bulls do. Um, I think maybe Detroit. I think maybe if Sabonis, but by 1990 he was still. I think he started breaking down 1991. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, or 91, 92, one of those early 90s years. But, but in 1990 he was still. We had seen him a couple years prior in the Olympics, like still move well and lead them to gold against the, against the Americans. And so in 19, 1990 Sabonis, I, I can't see as tough as like John Sally and Mahorn and James Edwards. And those guys were, I, I, I it's, it would have been hard to do something with Sabonis. And then that would have opened stuff up for, for Clyde, obviously. And it, I think it would have brought out the best in Terry Porter, maybe a reduced role for Kevin Duckworth. Yeah. Um, but prime Sabonis is better than, prime kevin duckworth no offense Mm -hmm. to kevin duckworth but um 
yeah, I I think at least would have maybe like I could have seen them take Detroit to seven. That series ended in five in 1990, but mm-hmm. I think they would have like been on the precipice of a championship more so than just kind of getting like gentlemen swept by by Detroit. Yeah, no, and and I say that because I think that would have been because you you made a great point in that era. If he comes over of centers, it's hard to stick up out above them. You know, like when you have a Ewing, Robinson, a Lajuan, you know, Shaq comes in 92, but the big man, you know, we said Brad Darty's there. Like it's kind of hard to, you know, Kareem is older, but still playing. It, it'd be hard. But I think that the way like Bill Walton, what he did in 77 and how he stood out there, I think that could have been Sabonis's way. Like, you know what I mean? Where he he's helping get his team to titles and then now we're really raving about him in the world of analytics. And then we can watch him and we're like, look at the passes he made. I feel like his legacy would have grown even greater now if he played in the NBA. Yeah, just one of the great players that we never got to see in the NBA in his prime. That's like a huge what if. I think he could have had like a slight mental edge on David Robinson. For, for sure. From the from the 88 Olympics. I think absolutely bonus could have felt that he uh, like like had some sort of competitive and mental edge on David Robinson. When Robinson came into the league, he would have looked at me like, I beat you in the Olympics. <laughs> like, so maybe he would have felt like superior and higher standing than even the Admiral, like in those, oh, in those years. That's a, that's an incredible. What if, well, I want to see what you think about it because I look at the 1986 NBA draft and I think for top five, what ifs in NBA history, I think we have three of them mm-hmm. in this draft. And I, and I don't know if you think they're that high or that lower, but I, I really think we can look at this between Bias, Sabonis, and Dra- and Petrovic of three of the top five biggest what-ifs in NBA history. Like, what could have been? All in one draft, I feel. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, Greg Oden uh, definitely – it comes to mind um there's there's guys like there there's so many like in the the early 70s that like bob rule i don't know if anybody remembers the name bob rule he was mm-hmm. an old sonic from from back in the day we mentioned david thompson uh and some of the toby knight from the from the knicks uh ernie de gregorio from buffalo there's like all these like what ifs but i think i would definitely put len bias up there um Definitely Sabonis. I think Drazen is knocking at the door of like those yeah. all-time what-ifs. Because we Drazen, actually got to see Drazen as right. an all-NBA player in the league. And that's maybe some, in some ways even more frustrating. Right, absolutely. And I think Drazen would be the one that you want to knock off. But if I'm looking at it, Thomas, Connie Hawkins yeah. is in there. Uh, Bill Walton. Bill Walton. And what if he could have been healthy, what that would have done. And and Brandon Roy comes to mind too. They they do they do yeah. Uh, but I, I probably put them below, below Brandon Roy, Reggie Lewis. Um, people say McGrady, oh. but I think he was too good, and we saw enough of him not to be like a what if. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think McGrady he did his thing. Like, yeah. um, now some may say Penny and Grant Hill. Yeah, yeah, right. You know. But they they did have success. Penny really was short. But we um, actually saw them be able to become all NBA players, like with 
Len Bias, obviously, we didn't, we never even got to see him play a game in the NBA. Sabonis, we got old rundown Sabonis. Yeah, his whole prime good, is gone. Was still a good player, right? So I, yeah, I, I, I would put Sabonis and and Len Bias like really high up there. Yeah, it's just crazy because you there's so many drafts, and you know I know you like we you mentioned before like Bill Simmons. And so we, I know you probably watch those things where he'll look at an 84 draft and all these probabilities and what ifs could have happened if this would have, and that's fun to do. I don't think they compare to what 86 could have been and the what ifs and the tragic and the, all oh, this happened, like just all these different scenarios, because even Brad Darty, the first pick is like a sad story in a way mm-hmm. with what happened to him, like retired before he hits the age of 30. Like it's just insane. Like yeah, he ended all up all those uh, things being a NASCAR guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after that, that that was kind of his second fashion. But I I do so I do these as an NBA draft nerd. I do these. I've done these redrafts. So I have like an Excel sheet, and in in each column I have a different year, and then I just kind of went through and like re ranked them. Right and for the eighty six draft, we talk about how how tragic some of these are. Um, but like with Sabonis, I would still put him like seventh on a redraft just for his time in Portland when he actually did play. That's how that's how like good he was. If you did a redraft and we got to see Sabonis in his prime, he's there's a good chance he's first. Him and Len Bias, they could actually battling out for a it. Bit, battling it out for the top for the two best players from the '86 draft. Absolutely, I still have Petrovic eighth in a redraft. Like yeah. he's. Just the short amount of time we had him, he's still a worthy top eight player from that draft and climbing. I think he would have ended up eclipsing probably Jeff Hornacek, maybe like Mark Price up in that range. So Petrovic could have been, I mean, you could, there's a chance. I don't know if Petrovic would have eclipsed Brad Doherty necessarily, but there's a chance you could have seen Bias, Sabonis, and Petrovic as like the three best players from that draft that we never got to see. Never really got to see, like, really do any, like, in their prime. Bias, yeah. never at all. And Petrovic and Sabonis, we didn't get their primes. Um, right. For for me, last question on the international side. If these guys, with if, if Sabonis plays, he just comes over, you know, that's pre-Dream Team. And Petrovic's best year was after the Dream Team. How did we always kind of give the Dream Team credit for the international boom? Do you think that changes if we get prime Sabonis and Drazen is already here and playing? Like, do we look at like the impact of the dream team? Like still big, don't get me wrong, but differently because before then we didn't really, Sabonis doesn't come over. Drazen hasn't emerged yet, but like, does that kind of change like their legacy? I think their legacy like changes. Maybe I want to see what you think if we get them before, you know, yeah, I think the dream team was still important to to push it over the edge. I think you needed the dream team um, at basically as as that catalyst to really push it over. I think the the international ball it would have been a little more popular. Um, you had Sarunas Marshallonis yep. as well. We talk about like those those run TMC teams of like Mullen and and Hardaway and Richmond Mitch, are, yeah. are talked about highly, but Sarunas Marshallonis was like the fourth guy yeah. on, on those Warriors teams. And he was exciting. Like he was like pre Ginobili kind of like exciting brand Great comparison of, of basketball. And I think and guys tough. like, 
and and tough. Yeah, martial onus. And that's what we figured out pretty quickly is a lot of those Eastern European guys were super tough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we talked about Petrovic talking trash and he was a tough guy. You know, Sabonis was pretty tough. Uh, so I think I think it would have helped, but I think we still needed the dream team to push it over uh, and made it make it what it actually was. But I think we would have had I think on the United States side, I think we would have had more respect for the international game earlier on. So I maybe think yeah. it would have been reverse where we w- it would have opened our eyes a lot okay. quicker if if, sub- if a prime Sabonis would have come over and did what he probably would have and could have done. I think it would have opened the eyes of American basketball fans a lot more quickly. It took like, honestly, it probably took like Dirk Nowitzki to, to really do that. Right. And, and, and that's where I think like, for me, I think like the dream team is the big, and I think you're right. That pushed it, but their legacies would have been so huge. Like the way to me, Dirk's legacy is great because of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's funny and that shows, uh, and I'm not passing the buck. It's my, me too the arrogant American where it's like, I look back, how dumb were we? These guys grew up in war torn countries <laughs> right. and they're dealing with civil wars and, and, and just all these issues. And we're calling them soft. <laughs> like, like right. I just think like how arrogant exactly. looking back that is, you know, we're just playing into stereotypes. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, that, that's really all that was, but you're right. Like we should have looked at the backgrounds and kind of the, <laughs> what, what a lot of these guys uh, had to, had to deal with. Uh, growing up and being like, yeah, they're they're pretty damn tough. <laughs> yeah, to survive war torn, you know, yeah. civil wars, and you don't know what's going on, you know, brother against brother, and you know, everything's being torn apart. And it's like, oh, those guys are soft. They're not tough. And it's like that's, yeah, it's like I look back, I go, what the hell were we thinking? But you know, that's that's yeah, that's us a lot of times. But um, <laughs> no, I. I also, you know, look at it, and I'm glad you had brought this up when we were talking about this before the show, looking at there are teams who had success. And I thought of two. You mentioned two before, but honestly, you can maybe say a third in a way. They had some bad luck, but a third team drafted really well where, you know, you look at what Portland did because – Kevin Duckworth is a part of this That's 86 right. class as well. And so Portland, it didn't work out for them. But, hey, that scouting, you can't say that they had a bad draft in 86 at yeah. all. Two-time All-Star Kevin Duckworth, by the yes. way. Yes. Yeah. He was one of – there were uh, there were five All-Stars uh, from the 86 draft. Kevin Duckworth was one of them. So you're right. Portland – um, having a keen eye for international talent and getting Kevin Duckworth uh, at number th- pick 33, uh, they got Kevin Duckworth. So he ended up far exceeding exceeding that pick. So you're right, Portland uh, did have a have a really nice draft. But I want to look at De- we'll start with Detroit first, and then we'll get to the other team. But looking at the Pistons, and it's. Funny, I've heard Dennis Rodman make this joke with John Sally that, um, you know, it should have been reversed. You know, he should be the first, he should have been the first round pick, and John Sally should have been the second round. But, you know, the Pistons getting at the 11th pick, John Sally from Georgia Tech, and then in the second round, them going on and getting Dennis Rodman with the 27th pick mm-hmm. from Southeastern Oklahoma State. You know, those are really the final two pieces missing for the bad boy dynasty. 
Yeah. Yeah, right. And uh, the, we, we had seen starting in 81, that's obviously when it started. With They, they drafted Isaiah mm-hmm. and they started bringing in like Bill Lambeer. They got him from Cleveland. Um, I think they got Vinnie Johnson. Uh, he was already on the team uh, yeah. a little bit early. So they started kind of racking up these pieces. They got Joe Dumars in the 85 draft in the in, at pick 18. So that was like an astute pick mm-hmm. from them. So we saw this building. They, were, they had these good battles with the Knicks. They're putting maybe scares a little bit into like the Celtics, even though they weren't quite there yet. But you're right. Like the Pistons final, you know, finishing things off with getting John Sally at pick 11 and then Dennis Rodman, which was a great pick at, at number 27, defensive player of the year. We all know Dennis Rodman. So this was like as far as culture and identity and what they wanted their team to be. Getting Rodman and John Sally was like the final one of the final pieces to the puzzle. I'm not sure when they got James Edwards. Maybe it was around this time too. Yeah, but those were like the final pieces as far as building their bad boys culture. Then they traded Dantley for Aguirre, and then things just really like they right. were the bad boys Pistons after that. But yeah, this was like a really uh, excellent. Um, turning point for for the Pistons and, and for the Eastern Conference. And and I think without this draft, in my opinion, the, the Pistons aren't champions. As great as Isaiah is and Joe, for what that cult, like you said, the culture, the identity of the team and who they were and the versatility of these guys. You know, Sally even coming off the bench but being a shot blocker and can run the floor and get putbacks and dunks, bringing energy. And then, like you said, we know Rodman a defensive player of the year could cover one through five almost out there on the court, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about him garden bird and then garden Michael or Scotty later on, like how important that was to have there. Um, You know, it's no shocker that after this draft, you know, Rodman and Sally's rookie year, they're in the conference finals, 87 finals in 88, lose a heartbreaker world champs, 89, World champs ninety, and then you know conference finals they lose in ninety one. But you know, like you said, they were kind of like in first, second round, mm-hmm. getting bumped, and then they became this title contending team with this draft. They really found themselves. They found yeah. such an identity, and I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that they got especially Rodman, and then they found themselves almost in eighty seven. Gave the Celtics a battle. They needed like that Larry Bird still exactly issue to Dennis Johnson to, to like you know the Celtics needed almost needed that to like stave off the Pistons even then. So mm-hmm. so it's just like culture is so important. We know in sports and in basketball, and these two were like culture setters and damn good on the court too. No, I, I think about a, a story I heard about Rodman when he showed up to uh, to like the Pistons camp, and people were like, "He started, you know." He was just like outworking and he's really, you know, classic Dennis Rodman. He was real intense. And someone said, who are you? And it's one of my favorite quotes. He said, I'm nobody from nowhere. And I always love that because I'm like that. <laughs> that was Dennis. Like he had nothing to lose. And mm-hmm. to me, that's what I loved about watching, especially Detroit. There's nothing like watching Pistons Rodman. And he just played with that. Like, yeah, I got nothing to lose out here. No one expects anything. I'm a second round pick. You're the guys with all the attention and everything. You got all that. You care about image. I'm going to do the dirty work, and I'm getting it done. And yeah. and that was the key to the Pistons getting over that hump. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so Detroit had had. A, you mentioned Portland, 
Detroit. But you mentioned nice the team. Pad. You mentioned the team that mm-hmm. I had totally overlooked before you said it before we were recording. Well, uh, are we talking about Cleveland? Yes, sir. Cleveland had a, an awesome draft that propelled them to like almost. I mean, they gave the Bulls fits mm-hmm. in the late '80s into the early '90s. They were like the they never beat the Bulls, but they made it hard. They always gave them fits. They needed like Jordan to be Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> for to get past Cleveland, essentially. So we we've mentioned Brad Doherty, who Cleveland got with the first pick, ended up being a really uh, great pick. Arguably, if you do a redraft, top maybe the first pick again, top two, three, top two. worst. Yeah. Um. So they got Brad Doherty there with the first pick. He was his career was cut short. But he was still like a perennial All Star in Cleveland. Then with the eighth pick, they select Ron Harper. From Mm -hmm. Miami of Ohio, this almost like we talked about how there was a certain prototype that was in the league already with Jordan and Drexler and those guys. Ron Harper fit that prototype. He was a rangy athlete, um, just really great scorer. He ended up um, averaging 22 points a game thereabouts his rookie season. (laughs) So he was like Ron Harper was like people early on people were looking at those Cleveland teams and thinking Ron Harper was the guy, right? Right. Out of, out of all of them. So, mm-hmm. so man, yeah, Ron, Ron Harper. So they got Brad Doherty and Ron Harper and then 25th, Jeremy, who'd they get? Yeah. Mr. Mark Price. Yes. Who, uh, I don't know because it, the ACC is getting popular and, and Price and Spider Sally were a good combo there. And I don't know how, you know, I know the big man game. And, and I, I, besides just like bias against Mark Price being, a, you know, a slower white point guard, mm-hmm. I don't know how he falls to the second round, in my opinion. And Mark Price, one of the un, like, underrated players of that era and just how good he was and how, like, innovative, honestly, into what we saw with Steve Nash and how people play the pick and roll. A big part of that is what Mark Price did in Cleveland, where like, hey, no, you can't just give that. You got to come up. You got to fight through the screen. Like people were playing the pick and roll different. You can look at it pre-Mark Price in Cleveland and after. And Steve Kerr, I know he's given props in recent years to what Mark Price did in the game. But like uh, a guy who gave people fits and what a top guard of that time, too. Yeah, he, one of the best shooters of all time. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like one of the five or ten best shooters to ever to ever play in the NBA. Like his free throw percentage, like he set the standard <laughs> as far as free throw shooting. And if the uh, three point shot was more emphasized when he played, I'm sure he would have cashed in on that too. Yeah, uh, four yeah. time All Star. Oh yeah, was he first team All NBA one year? Ninety three. Two. Gosh, yeah. He 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 re- he went as high as first team All NBA and three time All NBA third team. Yeah, Mark Price, well, he's one of those early 90s players that for myself growing up, like watching NBA inside stuff and following the NBA like I did, like we all knew about Mark Price. But I think as time has gone on, he's one of those guys that has fallen, slipped into the cracks of NBA history. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he slipped 25th, I think you did bring up good point. I think people he was he wasn't like you look at him. He's not the physically imposing guy. He was a uh, cookie, almost a cookie cutter white point guard 
in a lot of ways. That's probably how people looked at him. And Stockton hadn't been in the league long enough to to make us relearn, make people relearn those lessons, you know? Exactly. (laughs) So, so yeah, they saw Mark Price and it was just like, all right, we know he was good in college, but how is this going to translate to the NBA? I'm sure that's what they were thinking. And, and 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 you're right because you look at it. So he's he's in a big program. His teams were good at Tech. I believe they won an ACC tournament. Like they were ACC champs uh, one of those years. But I, I also got to look at this. You look at this draft. Johnny Dawkins was picked, I believe, tenth. Yep. And if you watch um, the documentary, the team that saved Coach K with that '86 Duke team. And they talk about how Dawkins, his big rival was Mark Price, and they would go at it. So to me, and Dawkins didn't have an impressive uh, name about Johnny Dawkins. His body wasn't, he was kind of really skinny, yeah. not that big. And, and you know, got he wound up being hurt a lot. I remember Jerry Krause, before he passed, talked about it. Like he uh, wasn't impressed with his body. That's why he didn't like him. Wasn't he but, supposed to be like the a Jordan stopper or something? Like one of the early guys who they thought could guard Jordan well. Some somehow, some and way. He yeah. and Gerald Wilkins were the guys who I remember being talked yeah. about. Like, oh, they're going to guard Jordan. Like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. No, they're not. It's it really <laughs> the guys in Cleveland, Ron Harper, or who they yeah. got. Uh-huh. He was the guy who, and no one can stop Jordan, but wound up being a guy who gave Jordan some yeah. tough times. Yeah, you know, um, and, and like you mentioned, Dumars did too. But like, um, I look at it like, why take Dawkins tenth, but you take Mark Price twenty five, right? And they're right. they're not that Mark Price better shooter. Um, they're bot neither one. Not like Dawkins had an incredible body or was an incredible athlete neither. So to me, it's just like it's stigma. It's that white. We don't want he's a white point guard. We don't want yeah. him. And yeah. that's why he falls into Cleveland's benefit. They get a, a pretty much like a third all-star. They get three all-stars in one draft. Yeah. Well, there's a player who was kind of cut in the Mark Price mold who was taken 22nd in this draft and outplayed that uh, outplayed that position, um, which is Scott Skiles. Yeah. So he probably should have been a higher pick. I think Skiles had a, a slightly better career than even Johnny Dawkins did mm-hmm. uh, in the league. He holds still holds the uh, single game assist record. Correct. Skiles does. And he was a great scorer at Michigan State. He had like 27 a game at Michigan State. He uh, he was a little I don't know if he rubbed people the wrong way in interviews. I could see that happen with Scott Skiles. He's a fiery he's a, personality. He's a fiery, very fiery personality. He's intense. He's very intense. So he slipped to 22nd when he probably I mean, should have been a top 10, to, 15. To, to fight Shaq. Yeah. You got to be kind of <laughs> not all there. Yeah. No, Skiles to, definitely wasn't all there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I think that's why he kind of struggled even in coaching. Mm-hmm. I think he, he's a tough personality. He's a, He's an intense guy. So I think that that plays a factor in it, but yeah, I, I just look at it. I think that's why those guys fell. Probably see a Johnny Dawkins going at 10. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Dawkins was okay. I think injuries kind of stifled him. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, he wasn't a bad player, but like, yeah, definitely Mark price was, was overlooked. And there's a guy, another guy who was overlooked, but probably because he wasn't like the best. Yeah, I think he, he uh, was a late bloomer and uh, that was a uh, Jeff Hornacek. Yes. Who yes. who's a very much a late bloomer. Um, I think Phoenix got him with the 46th pick <laughs> that year. Uh, mm-hmm. So that might have been, I, know, I forget what the rounds were at the time, but that might have been like a, a, a third round or late second round uh, by then. 
Um, but at Iowa State, he his number didn't jump off the page. No, and I think he was probably looked at as a cookie cutter kind of guard too, and um, he definitely outplayed his forty sixth pick, and he's probably like one of the four best players in the draft <laughs> from from yeah. that year. Just a he's lot of there. like, yeah, you just see scouting. I think just um, players who got overlooked then nowadays might not get overlooked so much. Well, let me ask you. So, like a little off course. A lot of times you'll hear things about these leagues, and you know we're on the NBA, but oh, so it's a copycat league. It's it's a cookie cutter league. Do you think? And I think you look at scouting, especially back then. It definitely was that. It was just like it, it wasn't as advanced, and I, you know, and people. And that's like a Jerry Krause stood out. He did mm-hmm. other things. He didn't just go with the crowd. Do you think that still applies a lot now where people kind of make, oh, this is the safe decision or this is the copycat kind of answer? Do you think there's more unique individual thinking when it comes to evaluating and scouting players today? I think there's less copycat as far as trying to find a prototype. I think around the mid to late 2000s, that sort of dissipated because in the night we we have talked about how people were looking for like a Jordan prototype. Yeah. So like Ron Harper even fell into that. So Ron Mm -hmm. Harper, Harold Minor, Jerry Stackhouse was like the Jordan prototypes. Right. And then there was a time in the 90s where Scottie Pippen became a prototype. So this person's the next point forward. This is the next Scottie Pippen. Mm -hmm. Dirk Nowitzki became a prototype and he six foot eleven tall European guy who had a good shooting stroke could be the next Dirk Nowitzki, right? I think that's been less and less. I think teams are looking less for like specific prototypes, but I think there's so much group think too. And I think, I honestly think mock drafts and and things of that nature kind of (laughs) hurt or kind of, they do sway uh, opinions. So I think GMs might see if somebody's going high in mock drafts, but they don't really like them. Well, I'm going to take them anyway because my job is on the line and I can it, I can justify taking this person who has been top all the mock drafts, you know, even if I'm not totally sold on them. Um so I I think there might be copycat in that way as far as like they see what other what experts or other teams think of a player and that might sway them even though they look at the player and be like I'm not totally sold. Mm-hmm. But as far as just looking at prototypes I think there's a little more independent thought um, than than there used to be. Jerry Krause was a good example, and we didn't even mention Tony Kukoc. We had a whole international conversation, and Tony Kukoc wasn't brought up, but like yeah. that was a savvy pick. And then he wasn't in this draft, but that was like a super savvy pick by Krause, and he was definitely an outside of the box thinker. Yeah, and he stood out from that. And I and and I think about Jerry Krause, and he's gotten mentioned on this podcast a lot, and he's someone in my mind a lot. Because of you said you were rewatching the last dance, um, how he's portrayed, and in some things I understand, but other things he gets wrongly portrayed. But you see, a lot of times it's group think. The Johnny Dawkins line, I got his his last interview, Krauss before he died, was that podcast with Woj, and it's an amazing mm-hmm. episode. And he talked about he goes Johnny Dawkins. I didn't like Johnny Dawkins' body. I yeah. wasn't a fan of how he was built. He too skinny, and he gets injured too much. And he talked about thinking outside the box, and he didn't want his other scouts. Don't sit with other scouts and on other teams. Stay to yourself because I don't. I want original thought, and um, 
I think about it because you look at 87, what he did, and that's like, you know, mm-hmm. getting Pippen and Grant, right? Yeah. Like, that's huge. And that's one of the all-time great drafts for any teams, getting those two guys and building right. a dynasty. But there's other examples. The year before, Detroit did finish their dy- cap off a dynasty, like, with Robin and Sally. And this Cleveland team, you know, did a hell of a draft in 86. Yeah, they they did that, and then they topped it off. They ended up getting um, oh, they traded away Kevin Johnson, but Larry Larry Nance was probably more of a smooth fit at the time. So they mm-hmm. tra- Cleveland traded away Ke- Kevin Johnson, got Larry Nance, and that was almost the final piece of like now we're legit. Like now we can actually feel like we can compete in the Eastern Conference, and they almost did. They those Cleveland teams were like fun to watch. I remember yeah. Gerald Wilkins was on one of those Craig Elo like that. Those Hot Rod like, Williams. Hot- those were like fun teams to watch. I believe Hot Rod Williams was in this '86 draft uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. Kind of through some funky circumstance. Well, like, I think he was a prop 48 at Tulane, and then there were some issues that ended up like sinking the Tulane basketball program, maybe for yeah. a couple of years. Um, so, but he had issues. He probably slipped in the draft uh, because of that. But um, was so so Hot Rod. Did we forget to mention Hot Rod Williams? Yeah, because he's coming Wow. So that was for Cleveland. So we have... um, No, Hot Rod Williams. Sorry, Hot Rod Williams was in the the 85 draft. There was a different John Williams. It was Hot Plate Williams that was in the 86 draft. Okay, because Hot Rod, I think he didn't play in 85, 86. Right. So So that's kind of why he's kind (laughs) of part of that class. Yeah. The NBA does... Sports team, I don't like that. I think the even if you miss a year, that rookie that year you're drafted, that's still your rookie year because you're with an NBA team, you got NBA coaching and training, and so. But technically, he's part of the '86 group because he didn't play. Yeah, that's that first year. That's true. So, uh, yeah, uh, I got I got mixed up with John. Hot Plate Williams from Hot Plate uh, Williams. from from LSU, who who uh, was the twelfth pick in the draft, and he he actually I put him as a, like on my list of like other kind of interesting players because he was almost like a Robert Trailer, Oliver mm-hmm. Miller type of yeah, yeah. <laughs> type of guy, and he he uh, was drafted by Washington and put up decent stats, but poor guy like. Out of all the nicknames, so like he, there's another guy named John Williams who was called Hot Rod Williams, and you're a bigger guy named John Williams. Like poor guy that to have a name that lends itself to like a demeaning nickname, mm-hmm. like they yeah. gave him just because there was a Hot Rod Williams. Uh, yeah, it, it wouldn't happen now. <laughs> that, that's that 80s. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. But um, I want to also, you know, before we we finish, look at. Some of the notable players who were picked, and I know you have your redraft, like so, kind of like go through like how you see like, you know, maybe your 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 top picks of like mm-hmm. if we're redrafting them, who's there? Because this this draft does have some notable players in it too. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to run this by you too. So in terms of redrafting, and I'm curious as to what should be prioritized. So we have probably so we have. Dennis Rodman, who had like the the most notable career as far as championships and this rebounding and de- all defensive teams, right? But 
if you drafted Dennis Rodman first, could you build a team around him? Right. I, right? I was thinking the same thing. Yep. So who do you pick first then in between Dennis Rodman and Brad Doherty? Like I would I would still go with Brad because of that. Right. I would still go with Brad Doherty first. So it's, it's interesting. So if you make an all time list of like greatest players, Dennis Rodman would be ahead of Brad Doherty, right? right? On that list. But if you're doing a redraft to try to build a team, Brad Doherty probably goes before Dennis Rodman. Because Rodman was a missing piece right. for teams and and that rightfully so. He should get praised for that. Yeah. He was never ever going to be the anchor of a team like the way no. Brad Darty was. Or and even Brad, Mark Price. Or Mark Price. Even though I probably would still at this point, I would say Doherty number one, Rodman number two, just to give Rodman respect for what he achieved, right? Yeah, I, I put Rodman over Price. Yeah. Um because Price's run wasn't as long either. Yeah. And he dealt he had a pretty bad injury, Mark Price did in the early nineties. He missed almost yeah. an entire year. Mm-hmm. Uh, too so um so we, we'll do uh doherty rodman mark price i think number three yeah jeff hornacek i would put number four really uh, over over uh over I would put a, duckworth or uh yeah yeah mm-hmm. over ron harper over, over ron? some other yeah uh, that was a tough between ron harper and hornacek but i think hornacek was a little more consistent um, I know they played different roles on finals teams. They played against each other in the same couple finals. Um, but I, I would have slightly Hornacek over Ron Harper. But I could be talked into having Ron Harper. Ahead I would of maybe because I don't think Hornacek ever balled the way yeah, at Harper their peaks. Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. So I like could Ron be Harper talking ball. like, yeah, Harper and then Hornacek. Um, Chuck Person is actually like mm-hmm. nine number six and we didn't even talk about like he out of all these players we talked about we didn't mention chuck person he won rookie of the year <laughs> yeah. he was the rookie of the year from this draft um you know what's so, weird he kind of always gets overshadowed uh because he played i feel like because he played with barkley and auburn uh-huh so he kind of gets overlooked a lot like chuck person was a good player for a while yeah. Yeah, he was he was really good. The rifleman. He was I definitely remember him from my childhood. Yeah. Um, we, when we've talked about Sabonis and Petrovich, I think they can slide in um after Chuck Person. And then the father of one of the yes. arguably ten best players of all time, Del Curry, was in this draft. Absolutely. Fifteenth, and I kinda have him like borderline I have have him ninth because he was like such he was one of the best shooters in the league. Mm-hmm. Reliable player for those for a while. teams for a while. Had so a I long think, career. Yeah, Del Curry uh, in the '86 draft from Virginia Tech, um, I think belongs there. Um, Johnny Newman was one that like had an under under the radar, uh, pretty good career as a role player. Yeah. Um, Skiles Duckworth, I mean, even though Duckworth made a couple All Star teams, it was almost flash in the pan kind of seasons. No, and we have a future coach, Nate McMillan. Nate McMillan, um, I have as, as top 15. Um, and then they're like, you get into role players. And that's the thing about drafts, essentially. Like, once you start getting into the even number 10 or early teens, then you start seeing like role players. Yeah. So that's why I think, in general, first round picks can sometimes be overrated because you're just getting role players past a certain point. But then but you have like Nate McMillan. Buck Johnson, David Wingate, so so Larry Kristoviak, who's still like a college coach. So um, mm-hmm. 
you know, an interesting player to me, and it's kind of a what if for a different reason. Deremy is. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you probably know a lot about Big East basketball from the from the eighties. Yeah, it's uh, Walter Berry. Yes, yes. Yeah. Walter Berry. I was thinking of the both those guys um, who are then, connected. Honestly, mm-hmm. from a I think it was the eighty either the eighty five or eighty six Big East tournament mm-hmm. where Pearl's going up for like their St. John Syracuse and Walter Berry blocks Pearl's shot at yeah. the end and Walter Berry was you know for those. Lou Carnesecca mid eighties teams, which in New York city, people still talk about the big East and those St. John's teams that they went to the final four with Mullen and Mark Jackson. People mm-hmm. say, well, as great as Chris Mullen was and Mark Jackson, Walter Berry was the guy everyone looked at just a great athlete, uh transfer kind of guy. So yeah. Walter Berry's a what if, and um, we talked about earlier, the explosion of college basketball. And I think it starts with bird and magic. But then a big part of it was the Big East in the early 80s. And the foundation of that was three guys as far as players. Now, the coaches were great personalities, but it's Ewing, it's Chris Mullen, and it's Pearl Washington. And Pearl, one of the most exciting players college basketball ever had, and a New York legend. You know, before the internet, before things going viral, he was, you know, going viral in New York. Hey, Pearl. This guy Pearl dropped 60 in this high school game in New York. Back when New York had that reputation of like, oh, you're from New York, you must be great, a prospect. That's kind of changed now, but for a while it was like, oh, but a New York point guard especially, you got a lot of hype. And those two guys, Walter Berry and Pearl, did not hit it in the NBA. So they're they're big-time what-ifs. Yeah, I so I, I know why Walter Berry didn't hit in the NBA, but I'm – Curious about Pearl Washington. And I don't even know if you have any insight on that. But, um, yeah, I, hit. Oh, my fault. Go ahead. No, no. Um, it was more of with him. His game didn't translate, but it, it was kind of like those things of he was so exciting. We saw him, so he had a little bit of injury as well. Like couldn't stay healthy. But a big part of it was his game. He he wasn't as quick. If you watch Pearl's game, and he, now it's easy to see, mm-hmm. but he kind of he, he had great moves, he had great shake and bake, but he wasn't as quick, and he couldn't take the whole kind of grind of the NBA. So he kind of flamed out from there. So that kind of okay. what hurt Pearl okay. as far as in that going to that next level. Yeah, and with Walter Berry, it was more so a part of it was his game. Like he was kind of a he was an undersized kind of forward. He didn't mm-hmm. really have much. Um, it wasn't like a stretch forward necessarily. So his being his size and being a lot of his style was a lot of back to the basket. It didn't totally translate, but um, him, him was also like attitude work ethic entitlement kind yeah. of things. He came in and, and uh, I think he started with San Antonio and he just rubbed everybody the wrong way. He put up stats like he could still score a little bit, but I think he rubbed everybody the wrong way. He felt like he was the national player of the year at St. John's. And he came in and felt like he was owed something apparently. And there were just like teams just had had enough of him pretty quickly. And I think that's kind of what did Walter Berry. And he could have had a longer career, probably not as a star or an all-star, but he could have had a longer career as a, well, I'll get you 12 points a game. Mm -hmm. And, made a career out of it, but he just, um, his attitude kind of, he forced himself out of the league. And, 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 and a lot of it, like, cause like you made great points and like 
I don't want to pass the buck. The accountability, it starts and ends with Walter Berry on that one, you know? But it, I look at it like just knowing Larry Brown and him getting Larry Brown <laughs> in San Antonio and knowing how LB, especially pre the AI, even with AI, like he, him and like those kind of players like that, there's just no, they don't mesh. They don't mesh at all. So it's like that doesn't That's help. I mean, it doesn't help a guy like, and Walter Berry, you know, that ego. Um, that that's what I think. I what I love about Dean Smith. You know, we talk about loving Carolina and what has left Carolina prospects since he retired. Um, was Dean Smith? Carolina was on top. So you look at a guy. Hey, people know inside the NBA, Kenny Smith, and he's a role player. People know him as he's not as good as Shaq and Chuck. He's a role player on those title teams. Very true. But give Kenny Smith credit where high school All-American, an All-American at North Carolina, uh, like a top 10 draft pick in 87, the year after mm-hmm. this draft, and all that hype but could adapt and become a role player when he was a star for so long. And that's what I love about Dean Smith's guys, and I think speaking on NBA draft, is having guys who were stars but then came into the league and adapted to being a role player it's not as easy. As we see, Walter Berry couldn't do it. A lot of yeah. these guys we're naming could not adapt and become role players. But Dean Smith and Carolina did that with a lot of these guys. I think that's a that's, testament to him. That's a, such a good point. Rick Fox became one of like the more um, notable role mm-hmm. players yeah. on the Lakers, and he he's a Dean Smith guy. Phil Ford was cut in that mold. He's a what-if. I think he, with him it was injuries, and he had some – um, substance abuse issues, I believe, but Phil mm-hmm. Ford was kind of cut in the same mold, um, where he was a superstar and he, uh, he ended up being productive for a couple of years in the NBA, but, um, but he, he had the personality that I think that that would have transitioned, um, yeah. to like being service, serviceable, doing what it takes to win kind of guy. No, no. And I think, um, how much of that just, you know, to just because it popped up to rep, like, do you think affected these guys and also to today where you're the star for so long? I mean, we're not even talking about growing up, but even in high school to college, you're the man. And then in the NBA, you're kind of seeing pretty, maybe some quicker than others that you, you may have a place, but you're not going to be the star. Like, how hard do you, how much of that you think is a factor in guys? looking at 86, but even after to today of that kind of messing with them and being hard. Oh, it's, it's one of the, I think, I think checking your ego or being willing to accept a role as not the best player is one of the main things that, that helps guys stick. Uh, I mean, I honestly think that, and I know his, his, his game was more of not for the time. It was like a dinosaurs kind of game, but like Jaleel Okafor, I think probably could have had some sort of role in the league if he would have like saying, you know what, you know, like I was a scorer, I was the high school all American, I was a college all American, I was a scorer, but you know that style is not working in today's NBA. Let me work on my defense. Let me try to extend my range. Let me do, you know, and I think somebody like Jalil Okafor. Right. maybe would have been well served understanding that he wasn't going to be like the superstar that he was in high school and college. Um, I think uh, somebody who, who has amazed me 
who's who's changed their game like in a way that I never thought they would is Brooke Lopez. So mm-hmm. He was like he when he came into the league, he was a back to the basket scorer who didn't play defense. Now he's a three point shooter who's one of the best defenders in the league. And that blows my right. mind. And Brooke Lopez Absolutely. is an example of like somebody like if it, you can change your game like you you can you just have to be willing to uh to accept a different role so you, you see you see guys like i can look at my redrafts and a lot of guys that didn't hit probably succumb like who are high picks probably succumb to the same thing like maybe like somebody recently like josh jackson he i don't think he i think he he had grander visions for himself and didn't quite adjust his game uh, to what need to be uh, and what need to be. I think Cam Reddish might be falling into the same thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, lately, you know, and I think, I think you hit the nail on the head as far as like, not every, you're not, you're probably not going to be the star. <laughs> That's just, mm-hmm. it's a numbers game. And you were the star in high school, maybe college, but this is the NBA. Like that's, you're, you're not going to be LeBron or Jordan or Curry most likely. So and I, what what can you do to stick? And I think that's as much as this draft has so many sad stories. I think that's a testament to for eighty six Ron Harper for mm-hmm. John Sally. You know, uh, like those two guys could do it. I think Washington and Barry struggled with that, but Dell Curry, like guys who did adapt and 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 you know uh, did those things like. To not just be the stars like they were in college, but to find their way, find their Chuck person, you mm-hmm. know, to, to do that. So I think it, it's a testament to both. It's a testament to it's such an underrated, but I think it's the key for a lot of guys making it in the league, which is I feel like, you know, pretty quickly coaches and definitely the players themselves. All right. I'm not I'm not going to be the man here. Like I was the man. I'm not going to be the man here. What can I do to fit for this team? Well, greatly in the NBA. Oh, I can rebounding. We all need a rebounder. Let me work on being that good rebounder. Hey, being this guy who can come in and help defend, help hit, and I can hit the open J. I think that's a big thing that gets talked about, but not enough with young guys, you know, looking at the draft of being like, all right, you kind of know who you are pretty quick. What are you going to do to adapt and keep that job? Can you imagine going through life being better than almost everybody that you've encountered at something and then getting to a level where all of a sudden a lot of guys are better than you and having to admit that? Like I yeah. can imagine how hard that is to admit, but I think it does take some like real sitting down with yourself with a trusted person and confidant and just really exploring it and having to understand like, you know what? It's not a bad thing. Like I'm still one of the best couple hundred people in the world at this right. just because I'm not one of the top 10 or 20. That's okay. And having to like have that conversation with yourself, I imagine that's really hard when all you were used to is just being better than everybody all the time. No. Um, I think you're right. That's a great point that it, it's, it's not easy. I don't want to make people, and you're yeah. absolutely right, Tom. It's a hard thing. And I think that makes it even harder today because now you're so specialized you know, in 86, guys, you know, play, people played all sports. Basketball could be your top sport, but you maybe you played baseball or you played whatever, soccer, you wanted to play football. Like now you're just wired to just being you play ball all year round and you don't play any other sport. So now it's really like 
you're supposed to be the best. You're supposed to be the best. And then you're not mm-hmm. like that really hits that ego. And, and, and I feel like it's really hard. That's why I don't put Rodman in that category because as hardworking and great a player, he was always the underdog. Right. So it was, I think that's what made it so easy was he came in and said, of, I'm, of course I'm going to rebound the dirty work. But like John Sally was a top pick. That was an adjustment for him. You know, it had to have been and other guys that had to adjust to it. So exactly. I think that is the key. Like it, it just is having the right situation. First of all, yourself, but then whether it being the agent, whether it being coaches, being real with you and being like, you're not going to die. You're not going to average 25 like you did right. in college, you know, but you right. still can have an impact. Yeah, exactly. There's two guys on the positive side recently who I think maybe weren't superstars that they envisioned, but actually have settled into good role mm-hmm. player role. Markel Fultz, I think, is turning into that. He's going to yeah. be a really good, like, steady guard. Not going to be a superstar, um, but he's going to be steady. And then Lonzo Ball, I think, was it was trending there as far as, like, okay, I know who I am. I'm going to play defense. I'm going to shoot threes. I'm going to be active. I'm going to pass the ball. Um, for, unfortunately he's been, um, he, his, you know, I, I hope he plays again cause his, I do his too. really bad, but he and uh, Lonzo Ball and Markel Fultz are examples of the positive thing that we're talking about is two superstars who probably had realizations that they weren't going to be like perennial all-stars and adjusted correctly. Yeah. And, and the, the names you gave, one was a first overall pick. The other was second overall Yeah. Pick, they were the so. top two picks in their draft. And yeah. Then, yeah, but I, I think that's a lesson that we all can use, but especially if we get that in the head of younger athletes going forward, we can kind of get that saying like, hey, you still can have a great career. You're still a value to this league slash a team if you can check that ego and adjust and like be willing to do that. So, yeah, Thomas, I'll give you the final word, man. How do you uh, sum up this? A draft, I think, is like like no other. As far as, far as the four major North American sports, I think this draft is like no other in, in history, this, the 1986 draft. So I, I a lot of pressure. Sorry, but how, how would you sum up? How would you sum this draft up? It's, it's an unfortunate draft in many ways. I think it was a pivotal draft as far as we talked about how it changed the fortunes of a couple of franchises, at least Detroit and Cleveland. But it also changed the, the scope of the NBA as far as like cleaning it up. Yeah. For, like getting, trying to get drugs out of the NBA uh, and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. I think pivotal in the sense that you know, like some tragedies happened, but it was that pivot point to ultimately think some good things came out of this draft. Some learning lessons, some harsh learning lessons came out of this draft. Um, but I think. It's one of the most pivotal drafts probably in sports history. Well said, my friend. Well said. Um, Thomas, this was awesome. And thank you because there's a lot of things we could have done, but I'm glad you you went on this journey with me to look back at, like you said, this pivotal 86 NBA draft, man. And this was a lot of fun doing these episodes with you, man. So uh, thank you so much, and I'll let you plug away on your your podcast the snl hall of fame yes sir so we do the snl hall of fame it's uh myself and jamie do and matt ardill uh do the snl hall of fame and please go back you can find us on 
uh, really anywhere that you get your podcast, go give us a subscribe, uh, what, uh, listen to some past episodes. Um, so the conceit of the podcast is like how it sounds, the SNL Hall of Fame. So we talk about a nominee each episode and then we do voting at the end of each season. And I, I actually look back at these episodes as I mean, the, the SNL Hall of Fame is like the conceit and and it's a really wonderful thing. But I think these are great standalone episodes as far as just having 45 minute to hour discussions of people who were important to SNL yeah. history. Mm-hmm. And I think they're evergreen episodes. I think go back to seasons one, two, and listen to these episodes and still get something out of it, even though, you know, even though they're they may have they may not still be on the ballot because they might have already been inducted into the Arsenal Hall of Fame. You can still go back and listen to like a, a the episode on Dave Grohl or Will Ferrell and get something out of it. Uh, Dick Ebersol, who did yeah. my guest on. <laughs> so I think these are just good. Like if you're an SNL fan, these are these are really neat snapshots and really neat discussions that you could go back and listen to um, and explore SNL history. And um, we're gonna we just finished wrapping up voting and we announced the the class of uh, the season three class of the SNL Hall of Fame. So uh, go listen to that. Season four will start here in September. Uh, we actually did a draft. Uh, me and Matt and John Schneider from the Saturday Night Network did a draft to, to pick the 15 new candidates for season four. Uh, Deremy is going to be my guest for Adam McKay, who's being nominated as a writer. Mm-hmm. So that'll be fun. We have uh, 14 other nominees that we're excited to be doing shows on. Uh, so just follow us, give us a listen, give us a chance. I think I think we do good stuff, and uh, Deremy's been a part of it, and it's been wonderful. No, no, and I and I'm so grateful that you you guys have had me on. I I was a fan of the show, and I was just like I wanted this is my kind of thing. I saw so I reached out, and I'm so grateful to be on. It's an awesome show. Great listen, great discussion on SNL, on impact, on comedy, on culture, on legacy, and also on, I want people to know that Thomas, you were on, you know, we have some wrestling on this episode. So you were a guest on Chris Jericho talk is Jericho's podcast a little bit, which I was like, that is so cool. You told me to look out for that. Completely surreal. Like, we appeared, Jamie Dew and I appeared on Talk is Jericho with Chris Jericho back in uh, January uh, yeah. of, of this year. And we talked about, we did our top 10, me and did Jamie and uh, Chris Jericho did our top 10 cast members in SNL history. So that was like surreal to, to talk to Chris Jericho and and be a part of that. So so yeah, go check out our Chris Jericho episode too. Yeah, Talk it is was Jericho. awesome. Yeah. And Jericho, <laughs> and I knew that you guys... You and Jamie were going to be uh-huh. ready. I was impressed with Jericho's uh, he did his uh, knowledge. Yeah, yeah, he really he, did. He came prepared. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was like, because I was like, I wonder how Jericho was going to do with this. But he did very well, he, and he, mm-hmm. he, I, I give him props, and he knew what he was talking about. It was a, it was a fun episode. I like Jericho's podcast anyway. Yeah. But that was a fun episode. I got to tell people, I know that guy. I know Thomas. <laughs> so yeah, I'm find like, us with cool. Chris Jericho. Yep, yep. So you, you know, so. Check that episode out. Check out SNL Hall of Fame and continue to like, subscribe on podcast apps for Bigger Than the Game with Dermy and Jose and also our YouTube channel. Like and subscribe as well. So uh, for our special guest, Thomas Senna, I'm Dermy Duff. Thank you guys for listening to Bigger Than the Game with Dermy and Jose. 